All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. So I have appropriately titled this week's episode, What the Fuck Does Crypto Have to Do With Hunting? Because a couple weeks ago, I put up this poll on my thread and I wanted to see, I was going to do one on TRT or I was going to do one on crypto. And I'll, I'll get into how I think that's related to hunting. And I was shocked at how close it was. I thought TRT was going to blow crypto out of the water and it was literally like 51 to 49%. And I had a couple hundred votes, like there was really good engagement. So I just, it really showed to me how much genuine interest there was in the space. So listen, if you're in this for the like the purebred hunting tactics and you know, extraneous topics like crypto and TRT have no interest for you, then just skip this episode entirely because it's it's probably not for you. But if you are kind of interested, I think this is a great way to get your feet wet in the topic and kind of get a basic understanding of how it works and how you might want to invest in the in the area. I'm going to get into all that later on. First up, as always, Deeply appreciate you taking the time to engage with the podcast, reviews, comments, subscribing, all that stuff. That's amazing. Share it with your friends. Deeply appreciate it. If you want to directly support the podcast, the best way to do that is go to mindfulhunter.com slash shop, buy a t-shirt. That helps fund this whole thing. I have no brand deals. I get no money from sponsors of any kind. I want it to be completely free to say whatever I want about any of the products. So your your help is is greatly appreciated. Um, new videos up on YouTube since our last podcast. I did a layering video called The Seven Pieces of Clothing You Need for Sheep Hunting. Really happy with how that turned out. If you have some interest in that, go to YouTube, give it a watch. Would love to hear your feedback. So let's get into the main topic. What the fuck does crypto have to do with hunting? I want this channel to be a place where we examine all aspects of hunting. And I want to share information that I think would be beneficial in helping you get more days on the mountain. That could be things from investing to things I've done that help my marriage to mental health. I mean, uh, tips to have, of how to take your kids out. Like, I don't want it to just be how to hunt as I'm getting older. So, you know, longevity tips like that TRT and, and growth hormone I covered in the last episode. And so the reason I wanted to get into crypto is that I believe in it, not only in its ability to disrupt the current financial systems that we find ourselves overwhelmed by, but I also believe that it's a legitimate asset class. And if you're going to look to diversify your investment portfolio, I think you should have a little bit of crypto in there. I've been in the space for quite a long time. I'll get into that later, but I do believe I have a credible voice in this particular space. And I just wanted to share what I've learned. And I thought it could be related to hunting as let's face it, we could all use a couple more bucks. And if you're able to do that, maybe you, you know, could get out and hunt a little bit more. And I will clarify right out of the gate. I'm not here to promote any particular crypto. I'm not here to promote an ICO. I'm not here to help you invest. I'm not I, like, I have I want nothing to do with your own personal um, forms of investing. I'm only going to tell you things that I think are important to know about the space 
and then some decisions that I have chosen to make in regards to investing in the space. What you choose to do with it is your business. I am not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. And this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And this podcast is for entertainment and education purposes only. Okay, as always, we got our set segments. We got to bang out every other week on the solo cast. Weight, 258 pounds. Almost cracked 260 again. Remember, my old personal peak was 264. So I'm only six pounds off my own peak. I'm up 24 pounds since I got home from the sheep hunt. And I feel great. I mean, basically, as soon as you start getting close to 260, the wheels start falling off. You kind of get out of breath going upstairs, putting your shoes on becomes a pain in the ass. Like you are a large human being. So most of that stuff is still there, but I feel way better than I ever have at this weight before. Now, I'm not going to do an in-depth training related video this week. What I am going to do though is share some learnings I've had over the past couple of weeks. I used to love hack squats. Anybody who's listened to the podcast since the beginning knows like hack squat and leg press are my two go-to compound movements for legs. Unfortunately, since I got home from the sheep hunt, I don't know if maybe the hiking did a bit of a number on my knees. I don't know if losing some weight, I got a bit dehydrated. I'm not 100% sure the cause. Could be form-related, but ever since I got back from the sheep hunt, My knees just haven't been the same on the hack squat. I can't find the right posture. I can't find the right form. And every time I'm done hack squatting, my knees are blown out for two or three days afterwards. And when you got a young kid and like, it's just, it's very like, uh, it inhibits your enjoyment of life when your knees are shit. And so I kept trying, I bought squat shoes and I was trying different, you know, ankle, um, directions and like just anything that I could think of. And it just wouldn't, you know, I couldn't get it fixed. Then I got, I'm like, I finally had this epiphany. Like, why am I smashing my head against a brick wall? I should just accept the fact that this exercise is not right for me right now. And so I switched it up. I went over to a pendulum squat and I moved my leg press over to a Cybex squat press. Um, and within one workout, not only did my knees not hurt, but I'd been having problems getting those like brutally sore quads and hamstrings to the point where walking up and down stairs is problematic the next day. That's how I like feeling after a leg day. And I wasn't getting that intense destruction that I was used to getting. After I switched to the pendulum squat and the Cybex squat press, legs are destroyed, knees are golden. I feel like a million bucks. And so I don't know, maybe there's just also the possibility that you do one thing too long. It just, it burns you out and you need to switch it up. And here's at the end of the day, I don't really give a shit. Why? All I know is there was a problem. I stumbled upon a solution that works. I'm now training legs at hundred percent and my knees feel great. So the takeaway there is yes, form is critical. Yes, making sure you're doing things the right way is critical. But at the end of the day, sometimes you might need to just pick a new exercise. So take that for what it's worth. Okay. Diet. 
I'm up to 300 grams of carbs per meal. Now that's not 300 grams of actual carbs. That's 300 grams of whatever material contains the carbs. So 300 grams of cooked rice, 300 grams of cooked pasta, 300 grams of cooked potato, whatever. Um, that's about 85 to 100 grams of carbs, depending on what the carb source is um, per meal. And I have five to six meals per day. So this is about like 80% of where I normally get to with my peak. The most I've ever eaten per meal is 400 grams of rice. And you start doing that shit and you just feel like a bloated pig by like noon. It's brutal. Um, but you will stack on weight. Um, the one thing I'm experimenting with is just not being as strict on this bulk. I mean, I've done a lot of nutritional research and, you know, Lane Norton and if it fits your macros and all this stuff is very interesting to me. And, you know, a calorie is a calorie and a carb is a carb. And so I just got thinking if we're already up at like 4,000 calories a day, does it really matter if I have tortellini instead of rice for dinner? And I think a lot of, there's a lot of stigma in bodybuilding around what you got to do just because that's what everyone always did. And I don't know, man, I got to say, I'm not being hundred percent strict while I'm bulking and the scale is going up. My lifts are going up. My body composition is positive, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Now, I'm not eating like an asshole, but I'm being a little bit looser with myself. couple cookies after dinner, you know, enjoying life. If the wife wants to go out for dinner, we go out for dinner. I don't stress about it too much. What I stress about is hitting 250 to 300 grams of protein every day, no matter what, and hitting my like base caloric requirements guesstimated. I know what I feel like when I eat a certain amount of food. So if I have to skip a meal or if I have to catch up later, or if we went out for dinner, I'll eyeball things and make sure that I'm still hitting kind of my gross caloric requirements for the day. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's working out for me. Okay, let's get into the gear of the week. Let's talk about AeroLite. So I am leaving on a mule deer hunt in three weeks and I wanted to try out a new sleep system. So Sitka sent me the new AeroLite sleeping bag. Yeah, that weird one with the armholes and the little thing that clips between your legs that some people like to bag on. Um, and I also got the AeroLite puffy jacket and the Sitka Kelvin Light Down three-quarter pants because the idea with the AeroLite sleeping bag is it's only a 30-degree bag. The way that you take it into more extreme temperatures is to do your use your layering system cohesively as a sleeping system. So you sleep in the bag in your puffy, which is something I normally do anyways. And I'm already bringing a puffy bag or a puffy jacket and puffy pants. So why not integrate them with my sleep system? So I don't have a full review on that yet, um, but I will be trying it out in three weeks. And so far... The fit and finish and the construction quality of these garments is fantastic. I'm very impressed. And little sneak peek, there will be a giveaway. And it will be after the hunt. It'll be when I release the hunt film. And I'm going to be giving away an AeroLite sleeping bag. So thank you to Sitka for that. Um, I'm really looking forward to giving that away because I think whoever wins is going to be pretty stoked. It's a pretty decent prize. All right, let's get into crypto. So why should you even listen to me about crypto? So I've been involved in this space since 2016. I've been involved with two different crypto investing funds on a managerial level. Um, I've worked with the courts and the police department and helped facilitate transactions in legal cases between um, the Crown Attorneys and defendants. Um, 
And essentially, I've, I've had mining operations and I've dealt with ICOs and I've basically been in and around the space for the last five years. And no, this is not my day job. It's like a little side hustle and I'm fascinated by it. So no, I am not a, a be-all, end-all expert about crypto, but I've been around this shit long enough that I do think you can trust what I have to say about it. So what is crypto? Okay, I'm going to take a second and apologize. There's a plumber upstairs right now roughing in a tub in my bathroom. So if any of that noise leaks through on the podcast, I'm sorry, but this is literally the only block of time I have to do this. And he said this is when he was showing up. So this is what you're going to get. I'll do my best to kind of get rid of the noise and post, but there's only so much I can do. So what is crypto? So crypto stands for cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency is essentially a digital asset that is accessed, created, and transacted through the use of cryptography. And I'm going to get into that more in a moment. Let's back up because the be all and end all of cryptos is Bitcoin, BTC. And the man who created that is Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, some people believe Satoshi Nakamoto was actually a group of people. Some people think he was one person. No one supposedly has ever met Satoshi. He released all this stuff through forums and then kind of ghosted and is just gone. He does have a wallet with a bunch of Bitcoin in it. So if that ever moved, people would, you know, reasonably conclude that he'd come out somehow kind of surfaced. But essentially, people have been playing around with the idea of cryptocurrencies for a long time, long before Satoshi and Bitcoin became popular. But there was a few things that Satoshi did differently than everyone else that kind of allowed Bitcoin to take off when none of the other variants had ever taken off. Now, he released a white paper in January of 2009 that he published as a result of the financial crisis of 2008. Essentially, there was this underground movement that was particularly frustrated with the financial system and where it had led us. Like if you remember in 2008, um, the housing crisis, the collapse of um, collateralized debt, you know, there's lots of great movies, you know, Margin Call, The Short, um, that kind of get into why that happened. But essentially, it's, it's a house game and it's rigged, Right. The big banks are essentially the government. The government is essentially the Fed and people print money when they need to print money and they save the companies that need savings and they let the other companies go that they don't like. And it, it is all kind of horse shit, to be honest with you. Now, I, I kind of work in the financial space, so I know the rules of the game. And if this is what you got to play, then I'll play it. But it doesn't mean that I'm not frustrated with the lack of autonomy that we have as individuals and citizens when it comes to the financial space. We don't play by the same rules that the big guys play by. There was a bunch of other people that were similarly frustrated that were kind of working on other side projects and Satoshi was one of them. And he released the Bitcoin white paper in 2009. And this white paper not only detailed the kind of philosophical thrust of Bitcoin, why he was creating it, what he wanted to do, but it also detailed the economics of Bitcoin, how many they were going to be, when they were going to be produced, at what rate and frequency they were going to be produced, and also the math of, you know, how nodes were going to talk to each other and all that kind of stuff. And there's a couple of key 
things that helped Bitcoin launch when other cryptocurrencies didn't. For starters, it kind of had a de-escalating reward systems. So the way cryptocurrencies work is that there are miners. Now, miners are solving cryptographic mathematical problems that are incredibly difficult. And for argument's sake, we're going to say every 10 minutes, and they know, we know exactly how hard they are to the point where you can almost you, you know how long it's going to take to solve one. So essentially, every 10 minutes, one of these problems gets solved. And if you're the miner who solves this problem, then you are given the right to take all the transactions that are waiting in the queue. So let's say 100 people around the world are trying to send Bitcoin to each other. All those transactions get logged into a queue. You wait for the next block to clear. That's what happens when a miner or a pool of miners solves a cryptographic algorithm. When that gets solved, the block of transactions gets put through and the miner gets paid twice, gets paid once a Bitcoin reward. And at the beginning, that was 50 Bitcoins just for solving the problem. Then he got paid to write those transactions to the ledger, which would then make them real. So if I'm trying to send you 10 Bitcoin, I would hit send and then they kind of sit in space. Once that mathematical problem gets solved, the Bitcoin leave my wallet, they go to your wallet, it gets written to the distributed ledger, which is basically this visible ledger that anybody can see anywhere, anytime. So you also know where all Bitcoins are at each time. Now, they're in anonymous wallets, so you don't know who owns them, but you, by an alphanumeric number, you can tell which wallet is, is which, you just don't know who owns it. But essentially, that miner then got 50 Bitcoins for performing that one, you know, not overly difficult computational exercise. And so that reward, the 50 Bitcoins, would cut in half every four years. So 2008, it starts out at 50, goes down to um, 25 Bitcoins in 2012, goes down to 12 and a half Bitcoins in 2016. It goes down to six and a quarter Bitcoins in 2020. This is called the halvening. So every four years, it cuts in half. Now, this will get to a point when there will be no more rewards whatsoever, but people will still get paid for writing entries and transactions to the ledger. So there will always be a financial incentive for the system for the miners. Now, the thing you want to keep in mind here is that there is a finite amount of Bitcoin. It's 21 million. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin created. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is that it's essentially a deflationary currency. So the US dollar, the Canadian dollar, any kind of national currency is inflationary. So what happens is as people make more money and as interest rates go up, the prices of consumer goods goes up. The more money needs to be in circulation, the more money gets printed. And you basically have this cyclical inflationary cycle that the federal government and the Fed control through adjusting national interest rates. And that affects kind of incentives for borrowing money, loaning money, 
keeping working capital out in the system. And there's this like, when you wanna curb inflation, you move the interest rate one way. And when you wanna promote inflation, you move it the other way. But think about it like this, current inflation averages two to 4% per year. So if you have $100 right now, cash, and you set it on the table and you leave it there for a year, it is going to ostensibly be worth $96 a year from now. Now it's still gonna be worth $100, but if you look at the price of consumer goods, what you would have been able to get for $100 today, you will only be able to get $96 worth of that one year from now. Like look at the price of gas. Let's just say for argument's sake, the price of gas was a dollar a liter. Today, you would get 100 liters for your $100. If the price of inflation holds at 4%, it's gonna turn into $1.04 a year from now. So now you're only gonna be able to buy 96 liters of gas for your $100. So the value of your money decreases over time. This is baked into the financial system. You have no choice about this. There are entire financial sectors whose only job it is, is to find you ways to circumvent inflation. You can, you know, you can hold bonds, you can hold money market um, certificates, you can hold lots of things that will give you a low inflation, you know, a low interest rate that are extremely low risk to no risk, just so that the cash you're sitting on doesn't go down to zero over a, over a period of time. And this is why, anyways, I could get a lot more in depth about this, but that is one of the issues with the financial system right now is that we're always combating inflation. Now, the fact that Bitcoin is deflationary, meaning not only is there a set amount, but you have to account for a certain amount of loss. Like, eventually, even if 21 million are created, they, they recommend, or sorry, people estimate that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 5 million Bitcoin that have been lost forever. At this point, they were just on hard drives, or they were, you know, who knows what. But I want you to think about it like this. If there's only 21 million Bitcoin, and value is a function of supply versus demand, and demand stays consistent and your supply goes down, then the price per Bitcoin has to go up. So think about that. The more dollars you make, the less your dollar is worth. The fewer Bitcoin that are available, the more your Bitcoin is worth. So it's an inverse relationship to that of national currency. That's one of the things that makes Bitcoin in particular, so attractive. Now, this brings up another really interesting question, Bitcoin versus the world. So there's these people called Bitcoin maximalists that basically believe in the one true religion of Bitcoin and that there's one crypto, it's Bitcoin, everything else is a shit coin. I am not one of those individuals, but they make a strong case and I can see why they would feel like that. There's the Bitcoin is gold argument. There's a whole bunch of of different arguments. But the fact of the matter remains, there are other cryptocurrencies. Not all cryptocurrencies are created equal. Some are shit coins, some are good, some appear to be good and then go to shit. Like it's all very um, complicated. And for, for our purposes, we're gonna leave the discussion today at Bitcoin and Ethereum. This is like the mother and father of cryptocurrency because essentially 
What Ethereum does that Bitcoin doesn't do is it has the ability to operate on smart contracts. Or let me rephrase that. Smart contracts can be executed on the Ethereum blockchain. So remember how I told you you could post a transaction to the ledger, somebody would solve a problem, that transaction would then be written to the ledger, and then that was real. It was um, indelible, it had been written forever and ever to the ledger. Well, what you can do with Ethereum is put qualifications on that transaction. I want you to think about when you buy a house. How many third parties do you need to involve in buying a house? You got a notary, you got a lawyer, you got the two different real estate agents, you got people at both banks and both lenders, you have a home inspection guy. I mean, the list goes on and on. Every single one of these people take a cut of the transaction. Now, what, are they, what purpose are they serving? They are a third-party, objective, trusted individual. So what they are doing is basically telling you, you can't trust the person you're buying the house from. So we're going to sit in the middle and for a fee, we will guarantee this transaction. You know, that's why funds go to escrow. That's why you're involving a notary public in several different banks. Now, what if you could have a smart contract that was written to the blockchain where you could put a list of requirements you know, as long as the house inspection meets this and our funding rate equals that and these dates match up with those, you could write the whole contract and all that other stuff lived on the blockchain as well. So there was a way that the blockchain would be aware of if these other things were true. And it's very binary. They're either true or they're not true. So if they're not true, the transaction does not process. If they are true, the transaction does process. There are real estate transactions today that have taken place on the blockchain fully without any third-party trusted intermediaries. And what that does is it gives you a trustless form of transaction with like a guarantee that even with a trusted third party, it's still not a guarantee things can, things can go wrong. And there's hundreds of different examples of, of how smart contracts and the ability to execute different functions on the blockchain can be very powerful. So Ethereum can do smart contracts, but there's there's other things as well. There's there's um DAOs, distributed autonomous um, autonomous organizations. I want you to think about like a company. So a company have a has a governance structure. So it has a set of rules that it essentially operates under and that in a certain set of situations it will make these decisions based on certain criteria. So you can craft, they're called DAOs, DAOs. You could craft an organization on the blockchain. You could input all those functions and rules and decision criteria, and then you could let it go. And it would be this autonomous organization that would make decisions based on the criteria that you had entered previously. Um, this is how some people are running new cryptocurrencies because it gets away from the fallibility of humankind and it gets away from social and economic motivation and incentives and it purely puts things back on the chain um, where logic rules and it's binary. One is yes, zero is no, move the fuck on. 
Um, another really powerful example of what can be done on the blockchain is DeFi or decentralized finance. So anytime you borrow money, there is a lot of complicated procedures, there's collateral, there's a lot of forms, and there's all this trust. All that kind of stuff can be taken care of on the blockchain now. I'm I'm oversimplifying things to a, to a, to a big degree. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that a lot of people say Bitcoin will never replace the dollar. I agree. I don't think Bitcoin will ever replace the dollar. However, I think there is a very strong argument for the power of cryptocurrency and its ability to solve more interesting other problems. Can it serve as a store of value like gold? Yes. Can it, can it create smart contracts and DAOs and uh, offer DeFi services? 100%. Are all of those things creating value and therefore can be used to attribute value to oneself and make money? 100% yes. So all the last few minutes, all that stuff was me really just trying to drive home the point that cryptocurrency is not some flash in the pan, weird idea that's like some dude had and it's going to go out of fashion tomorrow. I could be wrong, but I think we are in the very, very early stages of cryptocurrency adoption. And it's still going to be another 10 or 15 years before this stuff really gets baked into society. But when you start to recognize the power of the blockchain, you can't help but acknowledge the fact that it's going to impact our society as a whole. I personally think this is the biggest thing since the invention of the internet. So if you look at the dot-com bubble of the late 90s and the early 2000s, I never had a chance to invest in that bubble. I was too young. I'm born in 78. I think this is our generation's dot-com era. And I think there's there's bubbles and bubbles pop, and I think there's overinflation, and there's assets that are overvalued 100%. Um, Am I running out right now to buy more Bitcoin at $55,000 USD? No, I'm not. It's run up pretty aggressively over the past little while. And I think there's a very strong possibility that we could see a correction at some point in the near future. But I do believe that if you take a long time horizon, five, 10 years, I feel very confident that the, the major cryptocurrencies will be worth more five to 10 years from now than they are right now. And that's the type of thesis that you need as an investor. Okay, so now, oh, last thing I wanna to touch on, NFTs. I am not an NFT expert. NFT stands for non-fungible token. Fungible means that any one element is, uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for? Non-identifiable from another element. Let's take money. One $10 bill is the exact same thing as another $10 bill. So $10 bills are fungible. They are replaceable by each other. So they're worth the same, they look the same, and they do the same thing. NFTs are tokens that are non-fungible. They are non-replicable. When you have one of those little, they're not crypto kitties or whatever those little weird faces are that they're making right now, that's it. It is one thing. That's the only thing it's ever going to be. It's never going to be anywhere else. So it's like making a one-of-one one digital asset, and it will only ever be that one thing. Now, that produces some interesting characteristics from an investment profile. 
because it is like, it's like the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is non-fungible. There is only one Mona Lisa. If you have the Mona Lisa, you know you're the only one in the world that has the Mona Lisa. So, you know, people are very hot and bothered over NFTs right now. I try and stay away from like the cutting edge of stuff. I used to be big into ICOs and a bunch of other stuff. And to be brutally honest with you, like it's just, it's not, you kind of want to let the dust settle in things like this and see where the chips are going to fall before you make your decisions. So I'm not going to make any particular investment advice on NFTs. I think it is an unbelievably interesting phenomenon, but I'm happy to sit on the sidelines for the next little while. So take everything else I'm going to say with a grain of salt and kind of leave NFTs off in the corner because they are a fundamentally different thing than any of the other cryptocurrencies that I've been talking about. So let's talk about investing for a second. And I think at some point in the future, I want to do a general investment guide for beginners on this podcast, because again, there's just a lot of shit information out there. And there's a lot of statistics that people who are in the generation after me do not invest. And if you're not investing, you're being very brutal to yourself because you're fighting an uphill battle due to inflation. If you have $10,000 and it's sitting in a savings account, and just remember every year that $10,000 is worth 4% less than it was the year before. So your money is just slowly burning away. And the only way to combat that is through some form of active investment. And by active, I just mean having it in vehicles that are currently generating a return. You can use passive instruments like ETFs and mutual funds and, and all the rest of it where you don't have to make any decisions, but they're still actively engaged in creating return and increasing your net worth. But real high level, we want to look at a diversified portfolio. And we could get into like Markowitz and um, modern portfolio theory and what that really means. We don't need to dig into the weeds. Understand this. If you were to only own one thing, okay, let's say Apple stock take 100% of your net worth and you buy Apple stock. Your net worth is now 100% determined by the immediate status of Apple stock. If Apple stock goes up 1%, your net worth goes up 1%. If Apple stock goes down 10%, your net worth goes down 10%. This is an unwise investment strategy. You want to have a diversified investment portfolio. Ray Dalio says you should have 10 to 15 uncorrelated revenue streams. Now by uncorrelated, he means that their movements are not directly tied to each other. Like if you own Apple stock and Facebook stock, those are correlated assets. If you go and look at the kind of movement of those two stocks, they are going to move in a general way. In fact, there's a thing called an S&P 500, which is the largest 500 stocks trading on the exchange in the United States. I would argue if you looked at the entirety of the S&P, it is essentially, a, they are all correlated assets. Like the stock market as a whole moves in the same general trend. When things go up, most things go up. When things go down, most things go down. So we could almost consider stocks one asset class. Now bonds tend to be indirectly uh, related to the directionality of stocks. So because the value of bonds are kind of driven by the interest rate that's set by the feds, 
when the value of bonds go up, stocks tend to be on the downward trend and vice versa. So if you own stocks and bonds, now you have two diversified, uncorrelated revenue streams. You could throw in something like fine art. The value of fine art has nothing to do with stocks or bonds. Commodities would be another one. Real estate would be another one. I could go on. But there are a finite number of uncorrelated assets. So finding a new asset class that is uncorrelated to the other asset classes is kind of like the holy grail of investing because there's essentially the efficient frontier of investing when you get so many, when you get up to a certain number of diversified uncorrelated assets or revenue streams, you then they start to work in tangent. There's this, like this beautiful thing where some are kind of going down and some are kind of going up. And then as a general trend, when you follow it over five years, you end up making more money by having this kind of basket of assets than you would had you had just one or two assets, unless you like lucked out and bought, let's say you did buy Amazon in 19, you know, 2001 for like six bucks a share. Okay, fair enough. But that's just dumb luck. You don't, that's speculation, not investment. So we wanna, we wanna add uncorrelated assets into our basket of investment devices. So my advice to everybody is to just treat cryptocurrency like another uncorrelated asset. So you wanna have some kind of asset allocation strategy. Like I'm gonna have 40% in stocks, 10% in bonds, 18% in real estate, X amount in, in commodities. Now, each of these investment asset classes possess a different risk to reward profile. Another way to look at it is their sharp ratio, but we're not gonna get into that right now. You want different assets with different risk categories because you should get paid for your risk. But if you only have risky assets, then your portfolio becomes too risky and you could go all the way to zero. But by introducing something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, and I normally say like, okay, let's look at 5%. Let's take a 5% of your, of your net worth. Um, so if you were worth a million dollars, let's say that's every between your house and your car, like every car tends to be a liability, not an asset, but whatever. That would be 50 grand. I think that's a good place for, for most people to start. Um, but again, I'm not going to provide investment advice. I'm just, that tends to be a number that gets thrown around that would be considered a reasonable allocation for a newer, higher risk asset category like Bitcoin. So let's, let's say that's the number we're going to move and we're, we're going to do and we're going to move forward. So how exactly would you do this? Unless you are an extremely educated individual about day trading and you spend a shitload of time on exchanges, I don't recommend trying to time the market and I don't recommend day trading cryptocurrencies. I recommend a buy and hold strategy and I recommend a dollar cost averaging strategy. Now, on certain assets, I do not recommend dollar cost averaging because statistically you'd be better off to just buy it in a lump sum and, and sit on it. But we don't need to get into that right now. But because Bitcoin is so volatile, I recommend dollar cost averaging in. So dollar cost averaging in would say something like, okay, I have $12,000 that I want to put 
into Bitcoin. So that would be $1,000 a month or $250 four times a month. So you would do something like over the course of a year, every Friday at 9 a.m., you'd buy $250 worth of Bitcoin. Now what this does, and then you would execute that 48 times throughout the course of a year and you would have invested your $12,000. Now what dollar cost averaging does for you is it allows you to kind of ride the market. So let's say Bitcoin does just keep going up. Well, at least you started getting in now. And let's say Bitcoin crashes tomorrow. Well, you bought someone who's expensive, but hey, you still got money and you're gonna buy some more when it was cheap. And that's why it's called dollar cost averaging because at the end of the year, you will averaged into a position that will be the average of the market price over the time period that you invested through. Um, and it's kind of like a safe way to invest, especially on a on an escalating volatile asset like Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies. Personally, I think a very safe strategy or a, a reasonable strategy is like 50% Bitcoin and 50% Ethereum. They both provide a unique value proposition. They solve different problems for different people. So they're different assets. Now there's a bunch more that I could get into and recommend, but they start, you start double dipping. It's like owning Apple and Facebook would be like owning Ethereum and Cardano. Ethereum and Cardano kind of do the same thing. Yes, one of them could win. Yes, Apple could be more successful than Facebook, but Facebook's probably not going to disappear and Ethereum or Cardano are probably not going to disappear. So from an, a diversified asset perspective, there's no point in owning both of them um, unless you really, really know what you're doing. So keep it simple. And then if it's something that you're passionate about and something that you want to spend more time learning about, there's unending, you know, blogs and tutorials and, and YouTubers that will like go on ad nauseum about this shit. Um, clearly I am now one of them as <laughs> this is my podcast and I'm talking about crypto on a hunting podcast. Um, I've just had too many face-to-face -face conversations with people who have no idea about how this space works. So back to the conversation. I think dollar cost averaging in on something like a 50-50 Bitcoin Ethereum split, recognizing that you never put more money into this space than you could afford losing. So let's say the market just blew up tomorrow. I rode this shit all the way from 20K all the way down to 3K and I just watched a whole bunch of shit go away. And you have to be prepared to go through that. This is why people got... Um, nuked in the in the last you know bear market is because their FOMO caused them to do things like buy Bitcoin on a line of credit or buy Bitcoin on a credit card and then Bitcoin crashed and then their debt was called and they had to pay back the line of credit or they had to pay back and so then they had to cash out their Bitcoin at 10% of what its previous market value was the only time you really lose is when you actualize that loss. And you can only actualize a loss by exiting the asset. So even if Bitcoin goes from 20 grand to two grand, if you don't sell the Bitcoin, you haven't lost shit yet. Because clearly as it's shown, it came back up. And as long as you're still sitting on your asset, you're right back where you were in the first place. So that's a big tip that I would make in investing. Okay, let's just, let's just take a second and kind of recap this because I feel like I did have some notes I was going off of, but I feel like I may have gone off in a couple of a tangent. So what am I trying to get across here? 
I think cryptocurrency is a valid asset class that is gonna have a profound effect on how our society operates and transacts moving into the future. So I think it's worth investing in. There's point number one. I think the bigger, longer lived and more established cryptos are safer and provide a better, more realistic investment profile than shit coins, okay? Namely Bitcoin and Ethereum. There's number number two. If I was going to go into such an investment, I would dollar cost average over a long time horizon to get to the position that I wanted. So if I wanted 10 grand or 20 grand or 30 grand, I would look at a year and I would say, at what rate do I need to invest this to get there? And I would never put any more money into this than I was willing to lose at a moment's notice. All right, I could go on about this for a long time because I am fascinated by this space and I think it's cool. And if you found this interesting, then I'm I'm glad I could I could help out. Do not DM me and ask me what cryptos I own or what I'm trading. I'm not going to get into personal investment advice with people simply because I'm not a professional and I'm not going to be responsible for your success or or failure. If you do decide to get in, I would like to know. I, I mean, I find that that interesting. And if you have general questions about cryptocurrencies themselves, feel free to hit me up because it's shit that I that I like talking about. And if you're a fellow nerd and you've been in the space for a while, please reach out and and touch base. Um, other than that, I think that's all we got for today. Next week we have a very special guest, and I can say that because it's booked for recording tomorrow. It's it's somebody I've been trying to interview for months now. Um, and I'm super excited to, to do that interview. So anyways, I love doing this podcast. Thank you all for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon.